Welcome once more to the Race MotoGP podcast. Toby Moody and Simon Patterson are going to be discussing MotoGP during these strange times in the next few minutes. But for one person in particular, it was a very strange time in 2019. Jorge Lorenzo was on an HRC Repsol Honda, the works Honda MotoGP bike, and it was a complete and utter dead-end road for the three-time MotoGP world champion. Didn't even have a podium, didn't even get inside the top 10. He was a shadow of his former self. Come the end of 2019, he retired, made a big announcement at the final race of the year in Valencia, an emotional one as well, and one in which we saw him being quite open and quite frank. But come January 2020, he's back on a MotoGP bike, and he's back on a Yamaha. For me, Simon, his proper home. Absolutely. You could see the minute he walked into the garage uh, at the Sepang Test, wearing a blue shirt again, he just looked like a changed man. He was comfortable, he was happy. He was fit for the first time in maybe 18 months because of that succession of injuries from the end of the Ducati days right through the Honda time. And he just looked like someone that was enjoying riding a motorbike again, which is maybe something we've never really seen from Jorge. He's always been someone who's very passionate, someone who's very fired up to go racing, who's very competitive, but you didn't always get the same sense that he was there to enjoy riding bikes for the sake of riding bikes the way someone like Rossi or Marquez is so it's um yeah it's a full 180 from him in a very short period of time he was 32 by the time he made that announcement in Valencia saying I've done it that's it he had started on his 15th birthday when he was in 125 at Jerez back in 02 off the top of my head so, you know, when you're 15 and you get all the way through to, to 32, you've won uh, 250 World Championship, you've won MotoGP World Championship, you've got all the riches that you could want for. I see it time and time again. You're just mentally worn out. And I think he's had to step away, go on holiday to Bali and travel the world that we've seen with his Twitter and his Instagram, which has been quite amusing, I have to say. It's a weight off his shoulders, and now he's gone, do you know what? If I cut that bit out, that bit out, and that bit out, maybe that bit will be much more fun. And I genuinely think that's what's happened before he's even done this wild card that he said he was going to do in, in June at Barcelona. Well, that's it. Whenever you think, you know, not only has he been a MotoGP or a Grand Prix rider for most of his life, he's been a factory Grand Prix rider since 2006 when he signed the Yamaha contract before he'd even won his last 250 world title. He's had that pressure of being in one of the top three teams in the world for, what's that, 12 years. And I think just being able to, you know, post a video on the internet of him having a beer with his mates, just being able to do that has got to be a huge mental shift and a huge amount of pressure off. He's obviously very different from a Valentino Rossi. Everybody is. He's obviously very different from a... They're all very different. And that's why I love the... And I'm not demeaning their professionalism. The kind of soap opera, the kind of show mm -hmm. that is international sport, whatever sport it may be. Everybody is so psychologically different. It's great because they're different. He is very, he was very, when he was racing, very precise, very sort of clipped and twee 
very Max Biaggi. Max wanted it absolutely perfect. Max's beard was always perfect. When you'd have a conversation with him, you'd go, oh, he's got a new beard this week. We're at Aston. Next week, we're going to Donington. It'll be a little bit different. He was always very very copying Max. And, and actually, maybe he's seen the light going, do you know what? Why am I chasing the last 5 million euros? And why am I chasing this? When actually, oh, dear. And a lot of people get there. Um, I mean, what was that quote from Mick Doohan all those years ago? Mm, I was a bit awkward. <laughs> you know, WG, Wayne Gardner, you know, oh, I was a bit awkward. Yeah. Well, we were all a bit awkward when we were younger and we all had a bit of an edge and it, and it mellows you somewhat. And I can see that and, and, and you've seen that with the interview that you did with him in, in January in particular. So just give yep. us an insight and a paraphrase of, of, of what that interview was like. So... Uh, first of all, it was very, very strange in that, you know, normally whenever you arrange an interview with a factory writer, it's done through press officers. It takes a lot of organization. It's done to their schedule whenever they can fit you in. Uh, the interview with Jorge was done via Instagram direct message, which in itself, you know, says a lot about how his priorities have changed. We messaged a little bit. We set a time. He rocked up. We had probably the most open and frank interview I've done with a factory writer in in my time in MotoGP. Um, it was the first interview he'd done since that press conference in Valencia. And it was, you'll know this as well, Toby, it was one of those interviews where you ask one question and they give you a 15-minute answer because clearly they've been thinking for weeks about what they wanted to say. And there was a, a real opening of the floodgates he explained the whole situation with Honda. He explained why he felt he had to leave. He felt why he's so much happier now. And um, it, it was a pretty, I thought it was a pretty comprehensive picture of the entire crazy, what is it, two years from he won that race at Mugello. Yeah, so just to give people a wider picture he came through 125, uh, got into 250, won the 250 title. Um, he, as you say, signed for MotoGP 18 months before he even got on a MotoGP bike. So in 2008, he finally got on a MotoGP Yamaha, pole position in the first three races, won the third race with the fastest lap. I mean, God in heaven, it was an experience, and I will never, ever, ever forget it. I know I've said it before on air. I know I've said it on one of these podcasts before, he was just, oh my God, that pole position lap he did at Jerez. It was visibly quicker through the television screen. God only knows what it was like if you were standing out the back behind the paddock. Um, he then won the world championship in 2010, 2012 and 2015. Um, I'll never forget Manuel Pathino, Spanish. Sorry, he's um, he's actually Brazilian, isn't he? The, hey, there's a bit of Brazil. There's a bit of Gibraltar. There's a bit of everything okay. in Manuel. Manuel Pathino. <laughs> let, let's broad brush yeah. it. Manuel Pathino, <laughs> one of the most respected uh, respected Spanish journalists. He did say, "Ah, oh, well, Jorge followed the money." went to Ducati, you know, that the, the Philip Morris paycheck is very, very distracting. So he went to Ducati 2017, 2018, and there's a picture that Neil Spaulding's got of, of Jorge banging on about something, and every single team member has got their arms folded. 
but it's a Ducati. It's as if the speech, the, the, the think bubbles coming out of all of their heads is, but it's a Ducati. Well, well, Casey won on it. Well, maybe, but that was a long, long time ago when Casey last won on it in Malaysia 2010. So um, he had to battle and fight to get things absolutely perfect. And the irony, of course, was in his second season, when he announced that he was leaving to go to Honda, he won three races on the trot. <laughs> Yeah, and that, you know, I think that's going to be remembered as one of the worst examples of timing in the history of Grand Prix racing. What would have happened? How different would things look right now if uh, Ducati CEO Claudio Domenicali had waited a week before spouting off his mouth about Lorenzo's attitude and progress in learning the Ducati? But arguably, what Claudio said and then by the virtue of, of Lorenzo resigning to, 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 to leave to go to Honda, weight off their shoulders, Lorenzo's shoulders in one term, but also a screw you, which does fire Jorge up to then go and be victorious in their own backyard two days later. Um, he is a very... Um, you know, strong-willed soul um, <laughs> in, in emotional both ways. You know, the, the the spectrum is actually quite wide with with Jorge, I imagine, I imagine. And I applaud him for that, and I like that, actually. I like the emotional the, the emotional rider rather than the unemotional metronome who just wins 90-something Grand Prix, waves and goes home. Um, <laughs> so, yes, it works both ways. It works both ways. Just take us also back to, to how he got to Honda you know, he wanted to leave Ducati. This is a question. He wanted to leave Ducati before he'd realised where he was going to go? Or had he got Honda lined up? I think he realised before... He made his mind up at... Uh, I think it was Le Mans, where we had those comments from Dominicali that sort of leading into that Le Mans weekend. His attitude that weekend in the media scrums was, you know, he was... Like you say, he didn't take those comments lying down. He was firing back at Dominicali. They'd um, they'd finally listened to him after 18 months and made some changes to the bike that he wanted that weekend. And he was firing back with, well, you know, they finally listened to me and now I can ride the thing. There was a lot of, a lot of, a lot of back and forth over that. But I think the damage had been done. And then suddenly into the picture wandered Alberto Puig with a HRC contract Knowing that Lorenzo was on his way out from Ducati, or it sounded like he was on his way out, knowing that there was an absolute bargain to be had because he was obviously going to have to take a pay cut after that big Philip Morris paycheck at Ducati. And just, I think things aligned right. Alberto was never one to look a gift horse in the mouth. He swooped, he scored, he got his name on paper. And then 24 hours after signing the contract, Lorenzo won his first race at Ducati. It's quite bizarre. Now, you know, here's the question to which we will maybe never know the answer. Did Pooch sign Lorenzo to stop him going somewhere else? Or did he sign Lorenzo because he thought he was good? But why that when you've got arguably the best rider in MotoGP at the moment, at the time, still now today, on the other side of the garage? Ooh, it hedges your bets, isn't it? He is still the only person ever to beat Marc Marquez for a MotoGP title. True. And he did it on a Yamaha. You know, we know, 
I now know for sure that there was talks between uh, Lorenzo and Patronus because, of course, that was before they'd signed Fabio Quattararo. You'd think if he'd ended up on a satellite Yamaha, it would have been a factory spec satellite Yamaha. We know how good the Patronus team are. Could if I could interrupt, if I could interrupt, even if it wasn't factory spec at the beginning of the season, if he did well, it would have morphed into. Like it did for Quattararo. You know, he was in a factory spec bike by the end of the year. So could, could you have dropped Jorge Lorenzo into a satellite Yamaha team on a factory spec bike and expected him to challenge for the title? I reckon you probably, let's put it this way, he'd have been closer to it than any other satellite rider in recent times. Three or four races under his belt last year. No question. Yeah. But that would have been if he was fit because he did whack himself at, the, at, at, at Aragon. He hurt his waist, foot in his hand at Aragon uh, at the end of the Ducati year, which was 18. Yes. The last Ducati year, which well, was 18. He had a, he had a torrid, uh, like, four months. He hurt his hand at Aragon. Then he went to Thailand and the gearbox seized up in the bike and smashed his ankle. Then terrifying crash. Just when he was getting fit from that, he broke his scaphoid in training over winter. So there was that succession of injuries. And then obviously uh, later on, whenever he was riding for Honda, he had a big crash in Barcelona testing on a Monday test. And then two weeks later had the, 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 the crash uh, Asin, the one that really drew a line under the whole thing when he broke his back. And that's what he referenced to in his press conference at Valencia when he said he was retiring, you know, why why am I doing this? And what he referenced in our interview whenever we spoke as well about how the return had been, the return to the Yamaha test rider role had been aided by the fact that he had given the back time to heal and had understood where it was again because when he retired in Valencia he still didn't know whether or not he'd properly be able to go fast again on a motorbike because the back still hadn't properly healed we know how long these injuries can take uh cracked vertebrae things like that can take years to get fully back to fitness can't they totally totally and you know, it's easy for the for the keyboard warriors to say, oh, well, you know, he knew he was going to go to Yamaha before he even retired from Honda. He wanted to get back with, you know, the old girlfriend, as I might term it. But uh, I believe there and then, Valencia retirement speech, he was just, I just want to run away. I want a mental break. I just want to lock the door and be myself for a bit. And psychologically, I've always said, you know, the power of the psyche is much greater than the than the power of the of the body. Um, I did it when I was cycling and time trialing, and as we know, you know the, the 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 biggest part of time trialing is in your brain. Once you've got a decent level of fitness, um, and it's the same in any sport. You, you know, people say, right, I'm going to do it. I listened to something the other day from uh, a motor racing driver, and he was angry. He got in the car, and he was literally last on the grid, won the race. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've all heard yeah. these stories, haven't we? Uh, yeah. Binder at uh, Binder at Hareth. Binder at Hareth on the KTM. Yeah. You know, just yeah. like right, I'm going to show you. So he exactly he 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 just needed that break. Um, but at least Jarvis jumped to make sure he, no one else got him. But then again, who would want him? Because he's been a Ducati, he's been a Honda. And are the others really in the frame? Don't think so. This is the same man who signed him uh, 18 months before he ever sat in a MotoGP bike and before he'd even won a 250 title, let alone two of them. Lynn Jarvis is not a stupid man.
No, no, no. Well, he signed Valentino twice. Well, yeah, there is that as well. <laughs> Signing Valentino once is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Do... So, okay, he's 32. Uh, he gets back to physical fitness up to full spec. You have to believe that were it not for the virus and the problem that we've got around the world at the moment... Lorenzo would do a wild card at Barcelona. He'd then maybe do a couple more wild cards, Simon. And then surely space would be made in a Patronus Yamaha team or somewhere within Yamaha for next season, full season 2021. My gut feeling is that, yeah, of course someone would find a space in the grid for him. Um, I think, you know, we've seen Patronus in this position already at the minute with Rossi where they want to... They don't really want an old rider. They want to be the youth development squad like they have been so successfully with Fabio Quattararo. But they're also finding it very, very difficult to resist the, you know, the, that gravitational pull of signing Valentino Rossi. And I think Jorge Lorenzo would be exactly the same. Um, maybe even more so. Maybe even a more difficult position because could you sign Rossi to a satellite team and expect him to fight for the title again? Maybe not. But Lorenzo, like we've already discussed, you know, he's going to win races for you. For sure he's going to win races for you. It's, um, yeah, I wouldn't like to be the person making the decision. I'm glad that's above my pay grade. Yeah, and, you know, let's look at satellite Yamaha riders who've gone into the works team. Hasn't quite worked out. It didn't work out for Colin, and it didn't. He did very well. Yeah. But it didn't work out for Ben Spees. You know, nope. I really did think that Ben would have would have, have have stepped up. He did win a Grand Prix, won at Aston, but yes. Um, only this week I read something about from Ben saying, you know, it just wasn't the bike I wanted <laughs> in MotoGP. Full stop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was hand in glove with a superbike and that mm -hmm. and that's that's fine we know we all have our our strengths what we were put on this earth to do and we know that the yamaha is very much a grand prix riders bike with the corner speed and with the smoothness it rides like a, like a prototype it doesn't ride like a superbike not like say the honda or the ducati correct hence the 250 crossover that that lorenzo could bring from his 06 and 07 championship into 08 pole position yes. first race uh, exactly and you know and i know that you can go out on track at a test day and watch lorenzo ride past and that's like watching a metronome oh he, it's yeah, beautiful I'll, I'll never forget cal in the early stages of a Jerez race saying he was following somebody in a pedroza and he said turn one every lap they are half an inch perfect and of course, to mere mortals who walk this planet like you or I, I just cannot get my head around that. I That is where I am in utter, utter, total awe of these sportsmen at that speed and at that the physical violence on the bike and they get it inch perfect yes. and they get off the bike. You know, and Pedroza's 49 kilos dripping wet. I just <laughs> don't know how they do it. And that's why I love watching them, because they are the best in the world. But, yeah, they are they are metronomic uh, and, and, and so perfect, so perfect. Has Lorenzo still got his got his manager, the same manager, Al, Albert? Uh, no, they've, they've had a bit of a change in how things... Well, they had, whether or not Albert comes back in the scene again. Um, Albert kind of stepped down a little bit, um, I think simply because Jorge wasn't racing. 
and he's got someone now in Switzerland, someone who lives near his house in Lausanne, who's doing this sort of everyday stuff. And Albert is still, there was no falling out. He's still there in the background, I think, helping out with a few little bits and pieces. But he's not, he's not the, the main man anymore. What are your standout memories of Lorenzo? Ooh, you're putting me on the spot there. Um, for sure, one of them is Valencia 2016. The final race at Yamaha, the pole position, the fastest lap, the victory by 10 seconds at Valencia. Just the, the proper, like, that is a Jorge Lorenzo race. That is how you sign out in style. Um, that is probably, for me, that's the, the finest Lorenzo moment I've seen in person. Um, but before that, as a fan, when I was in the paddock, it's got to be Catalunya 09, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, he gave it his best shot, didn't he? God. He did. That that to me, that to me was just, you know, him and Rossi going at it, hammer and tongs. It didn't even matter who won. No, it was great TV. It was great sport. It was great sport. Um, yes, it was good. What about off the bike? What about away from the television screen, around the paddock, bumping into an, him at an airport or something? So the, there's a there's a good story that I always tell um, about him, actually. I... So I, my first season in MotoGP was 2016. So I started in Qatar as my first race, uh, went on to Argentina, which was race two at the time. And uh, Argentina and Texas were back to back. So it was, uh, we flew straight from one to the other. And I'd come from British Superbikes and in BSB sometimes, if you got word of a story and you broke it before people were ready to announce it, they'd get a little bit arsy with you. They didn't like you scooping their story before the press release. And I was, you know, still very much in that mindset coming into MotoGP. Well, I found out in Argentina that he'd signed for Ducati. And I ran the story on the Wednesday, which was then the day before the press conference in Austin. And we went big on it, as MCN did on big stories back then. You know, we photoshopped them into Ducati leathers. That went in the front cover. We we did everything for it. And he was scheduled to be in the press conference in Texas on the Thursday. And I was standing at the back of the press conference room when it started. Because you didn't want to be at the front. Basically, yeah. <laughs> Thinking, no idea how this is going to go down whenever all the Ducati and Yamaha bosses arrive. And uh, I was standing talking to someone and I got hit a slap in the back. And I turned around and Lorenzo was standing there and just went, hey, nice story this week, with a big smile on his face and walked on. And coming in from, you know, this reputation of Jorge Lorenzo as uh, the sort of the modern day Max Biaggi, the arrogant, the rude, the difficult. It was like, oh, he's actually quite an all right guy, actually. And, um, you know, the relationship I've, I've had with him since then has always been really, really good, thankfully. Um, we've, you know, we've had a few beers down the lines. We've had a few good nights out. We've had a few catch-ups together. And he could not be more different from the, the public perception of him, I think. Couldn't agree more. Friend of mine, uh, now friend of mine, but at the time he, he was just a, uh, a colleague in the paddock, uh, started work in 2006 in the paddock. And he'd been watching him on the telly with his with his with his one two five stuff, and then he was in the height of his two fifty on the Fortuna Aprilia. He didn't like him, and I said, no, 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 just just give him a chance, give him a chance. He he he's all right, really. He didn't speak much English. He struggled with his English. He'd sort of 
cock his head like a dog to try and understand all of the nuances that you would say to him and you deliberately slow your words down and not use silly long English words that you knew he wouldn't use. And I said to my friend, I said, just give him a chance. And of course, he came round to him. And I get a lot of people saying, whether or not it's through Twitter or internet or bumping into them at a train, oh, God, I don't like him, I don't like him. I go, well, I don't like Mercedes, brand new Mercedes Benzes, but they're not bad cars. <laughs> you know, it's that simple. They're just, yeah. they're just not my cup of tea. It's that simple. Mm. But engineering-wise, they are fantastic. They could drive to the moon and back like a Frankfurt taxi. They're brilliant. But I said, just give him a chance. He's all right. And then, of course, people would come around and you'd, and you'd maybe talk to people like, if you bump into them a track or whatever. And you get... You, it's too easy to judge a book by its cover. We've all been guilty of it, haven't we? We have. You know, we've all been guilty. You know, there's, there's, there's other people that I've seen on television. Oh, I don't like him. And then for whatever reason in life, you bump into them. And now I'm friends with one of them. And I think, how did I get you so wrong? <laughs> ah, I hadn't even met you. Yeah, it's that yeah, simple. Exactly. So I, I, in, my, in my later years, I sort of think, don't bite someone's head off first, like give them a chance. But anyway, I my my memories were uh, the first three races when he got onto a MotoGP Yamaha in 2008 and then the win in Estoril. I loved Estoril. There was always something going on at Estoril that was fun and, 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 and memorable. And then he won that Spanish Grand Prix and he jumped into the pool, jumped into the lake. Yeah. Almost drowned. Almost drowned, because funnily enough, he realised that trying to swim in leathers cut into a racing position with boots on, and then when the when the material in the helmet filled up with water, yeah, with the visor down. Oh dear. <laughs> um, yes, yes, that wouldn't have been good uh, TV. It wouldn't would it? have been so, good uh, But he got away with it. But as I, you know, I've got a I've got a photograph of him in the garage after the race. So he's finished the race, podium, press conference. Then the Yamaha press conference, maybe... No, he wouldn't have done that. So he came back down to the garage, all the mechanics, slapped him on the back, whatever, and I dared to put my head in, I don't know, hour and a half later. Yeah. Hour and a half, so it's half four, quarter to five by now. And he's in there. And I go up to him, and I shake his hand, and I say, well done, that was a hell of a race, you know, and great celebration. And he was on the phone to somebody. And I stood back, and I took this picture of the water still dripping out of the heel of his boot <laughs> onto a little little puddle that was only a couple of inches across on the light blue carpet. Yes. And uh, for the website I was supplying at the time, they said it was the biggest viewed, most viewed picture of the month. <laughs> and I couldn't get my head around it. And they said, I said, why? And they said, because it's behind the scenes. Yeah. But anyway, um, he gave me his knee slider from that race and I've, I've got it in my office. Oh, cool. Um, it's not signed or anything. I'm not bothered yeah, about that but... kind of stuff. But I, I look at it and I go, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but, but another time, when, when I... Uh, so the, the, the TV coverage finished uh, on, in 2013. It moved to BT. But I went back to Silverstone in 2014. And I'm wandering around the paddock and I bump into him just going into his hospitality. And he sees me. He says, oh, come in. You know, nice to see you. And I'm, I, I don't like the whole, you know, too much. Um, I don't like to sort of talk about it too much. You know, I'm buddies with somebody or whatever. But anyway, I sat down. We sat down with him in, in, in the hospitality. 
and we had a coffee or drink or whatever, and he just wanted to catch up. But that's when it really hit me about his his meticulous attitude to understanding what else goes on around the paddock. Yeah. He was listening to some old stories that I was telling, old stories of people before they got to a motor GP, because as you know, they like to understand the rider's psyche so that when they're side by side with them into the last corner for the championship, they might have an understanding of what they might do. Um, and we had, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever it was, doesn't matter. And it was uh, it was very, very interesting. But I've always had time for him. I've always... I know he's a bit I know he's a bit different. I know that the cinema celebration he did after he won a Le Mans got a deck chair out and he looked at the big screen at the bottom of the hill after the Dunlop Bridge. And I remember that the fallout from the fans was a bit, oh, he's just trying to copy Valentino with yes. cool down lap celebrations. Um and I thought, well, just Whatever he does, the fans aren't going to like it. So give him a chance. He can't not celebrate. Yeah. Give him a chance. Um, so yeah, and then um, and then yeah, I, I've, I've written some articles about him, and you know, likewise, he he does he does see them. Oh yeah, and I sent and I sense he does actually do his Instagram and he does actually do yeah, his, yeah, yeah. his Twitter. There's not somebody that, no. that does it all for no, him. No, 100% it is him. I think he's got someone that takes the pictures for him, but, you know, all the interactions is him, all the messages back to people when he does his little Q&As and, um, you know, has conversations with people. That is 100% him. And like you say, he is one of those writers that reads everything you write about him. Very much so. Very much so. Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, let's just hope that the good thing about this downtime period with no racing, no riding, is that whatever niggling injuries were still healing are now healing properly without the uh, the inconvenience of a Yamaha test to wear him out, or God forbid, yes. fall off, because that happens now and again. So hopefully he'll be back on for Maybe it's the second coming, and maybe it won't be a Schumacher return. It'll be a... A return with a bang. I I can't see it being a Schumacher-esque. I think the fire is still there. The talent is still there. It hasn't been as long as it was for Schumi. True. And he's not uh, as old you know, as Schumacher. And he's not as old, yeah. And, and you know, we're, we're seeing... It's becoming more and more normal to be on the MotoGP grid at an older age. You know, if he came back onto the grid now, he's still the fourth oldest rider in the grid. He's still younger than Crutchlow. He's still younger than Davizioso. He's obviously still younger than Rossi. Who's 41. 41. Yeah. Yep. 41. Yeah. Um, Cal's 35. Dobby's 34. No, that's just Cal's number. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that, that'll be that'll be very interesting. And just coming back to what you mentioned five, ten minutes ago, it's a dilemma for Lynn Jarvis if 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 Patronus is the young gun team and the the the, the, the foundation of the future. Do you just make an exception and hope that the older gun would be better? We would be better for race wins with Lorenzo against 
investing in the youth of a of a of a of a, of a younger one coming through, a la a la Fabio Quattraro. Would you get more sales from Lorenzo? Would you get more PR from Lorenzo? Would you get more coverage? Would you get more race wins? Arguably, yes. But then it's a shorter window, and then it stops because he will slow down and he will get old. For me, there's a very elegant solution to the whole problem that Yamaha are facing at the minute. Say it, because I know what I would do. Stick another two bikes in the grid. I'd stick another one. Yeah, yeah. But well, yeah, yeah. they need somewhere to put Valentino. He said he's not retiring. They've promised to support him next year. Why not just create a Legends team? I think Valentino would do that. I think him and Lorenzo... I, for me, the um, the most, you know, we were talking about never judging a book by its cover and people changing and understanding each other better. For, for me, one of the most telling things about Lorenzo and his attitude is the fact that him and Rossi are now on speaking terms again. You know, the, the days of the wall are long gone. They're they're not buddies, but they're they're more than happy to work together. You know, we saw him in the garage in Sepang helping Rossi out during testing and feeding information. Yamaha already have a test team now that's European-based with uh, Rossi's former crew chief in charge. How much extra effort would it take to step it up into a factory-supported team to go racing? Not a colossal amount. But to a European mind, that's a very simple solution. Uh, the, the difference is what would the Japanese management think of, of doing it and... Uh, you know, you could spend 40 years working for the Japanese and love them as we do. You'd think you know everything. And then at the last minute, something would be very odd. Uh, I've learned that. Um, I look at it and the pair of them are not stupid with motorsport history. I look at it with the Senna Prost thing. Hate each other's guts wasn't even one percent of the problem. It was utter, utter <laughs> war between them. Um, uh, they, yes. no, you know, they drove into each other a championship was decided twice by them coming together um yeah and so the last time that happened 91 um 92 93 last race of 93 so you're what two years later after the last suzuka coming together between senna and the mclaren and prost in the ferrari at the first corner murray walker and it's happened immediately that one Two years later, Senna wins in Australia in a McLaren. It was his last McLaren race. Uh, Prosty was on the podium as well, then world champion for that year in a Williams, and he invites Prost up onto the top step and he hugs him. And Prost has since said, that came out the blue. That was, whoa, that came out the blue, but I was happy, you know, let sleeping dogs lie, bygones big bygones, time is a healer. And over the winter, they communicated like they hadn't before since their war, particularly when they were at McLaren together. And, of course, five months later, Senna's dead. So the, I hope they, 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 they look at that and they don't want to miss the opportunity to, to, to heal a wound yes. that is healable. Uh, and it certainly wasn't yes. as bad as Prost and Senna. I mean, that was just... No. Or as bad as Rossi and Marquez. Correct, correct. I mean, you know, the pair of them, Rossi and Marquez, you know, they will respect their riding skill, their world championships. It's there in data. You know, Marquez isn't just a hothead who's won half a dozen Grand Prix and did something silly in Malaysia that day. But not, not sorry, Rossi did something silly against Marquez that day. It, 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 there is a respect. So hopefully they will come together. And as you say, they've, they've started to do it already. 
that picture of the pair of them in the garage at Malaysia test. Wow. Who'd ever have thought it, eh? <laughs> but that's good because you don't need a war like that. It's it's just using energy that you don't need to waste. So, mm, interesting times, interesting yeah. times. There's nothing more fascinating, is there, than talking about the psychology of sportsmen? Oh, absolutely. It's far more interesting than the... Uh, the mental side is far more interesting than the physical side. And these days, as the rules get closer and closer, for me, it's far more interesting than the technical side as well, to be honest. Don't say that to Spalding. Yeah, I know. He's not here, so he can say it. <laughs> He'll knock your coffee over. <laughs> He'll knock your coffee over. Uh, so then, um, well, Simon, I... You know, I, I knew that you and I were in the same boat about Jorge Lorenzo. Uh, he is he is an unbelievable talent, five-time world champion, uh, 250 GP. It's a fairy tale for him to come back and win a GP championship against Mark Marquez. But if Mark wasn't there, he'd have a chance. But unfortunately, it was ever <laughs> thus. Mark is there at the moment. But... We have seen before that Mark can have a bad season. And maybe Honda we're going to have one this year if the Honda is not being so good. Yeah. Well, for me, it'll be interesting to see what happens next year. Um, if we have to use the same bike again, engine-wise, but the others can make it, you know, continue that refinement with chassis that we've been seeing. Who knows? Maybe 2021's, you know, the 2015 again. We shall see. We shall see. Fascinating times. Simon, thank you. Uh, do catch up with Simon's interview that he did with Jorge Lorenzo. It's on the-race.com. And if you do a search, it's back in late January, early February that it yeah, came out. Mid-February. Mid-February. I'll, I'll, ping, uh, I'll ping a link out on Twitter as well again, whenever we post the podcast. Exactly. You can, uh, you can catch up with that. And as Simon mentioned, a very in-depth, interview real genuine one-off uh, that a journalist can get into the mind of a works mother gp rider thank you uh, simon for your inputs stay safe pleasure as always talk to you soon talk to you soon and for those of you who want to keep in touch with some stories and some retro stories and formula one and esports stories then keep in touch with the-race.com uh, Neil Spaulding and I are going to do another retro look back podcast in the future as well. So do like and subscribe this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. In the meantime, from Simon Patterson and me, Toby Moody, it's goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>